Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. We are lucky enough to have John Krinsky join us today. Dr. Krinsky is a professor of political science at the City University of New York. Thus far, we've looked at a lot of the trends and changes within the housing industry. We've heard a lot about programs and solutions, but so far, we haven't heard much about the people inhabiting these homes. Today, we want to talk about the conditions facing the people these solutions are trying to help. Dr. Krinsky earned his PhD from Columbia University and focuses on public policy, urban politics, and modern protest and activist movements. He is the author of Who Cleans the Park and Free Labor. Both offer examinations of labor and job policies from state and local levels. He is also the co-editor of two journals, Metropolitics and Social Movement Studies. In addition to his work in academia, he's also the founder of the New York City Community Land Initiative, a grassroots collective of nonprofits and NGOs that promote community land trusts and housing for all. Together, we discuss some of the failures of market-based approaches, evaluating policy responses to poverty and inequality, and some of the differences in exchange or monetary versus use value. Just a reminder that our poll is still open. What do you want to hear on the podcast? Make your voice heard through our poll or the Q&A. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to, to be on this panel. I'm going to indulge being a professor a little bit um, before uh, talking about some of the, the work, the, the more direct advocacy work that I've been involved with. But I chose this uh, picture from uh, Rene Magritte, the uh, surrealist artist, partially because there is a, a level of surreality that, that uh, revolves around our current housing policy. But also the surrealists were, you know, did their did their work in order to help free our imaginations. And so it's in the spirit, in that spirit that I that I offer what follows. Um, so this is a panel on evaluating policy responses. But you know, from from my perspective, uh, the first thing that we have to ask is, uh, what are we responding to? What are the policies responding to? And and I think to to really talk about what the uh, responses of housing policy, I think we're we need to be sort of historically and theoretically honest with ourselves that some of it began with a concern to respond to social disorder in the slums, uh, an idea that um, if you didn't deal with housing, both disease and radical ideas might spread among uh, the poor and working classes. Another, at other points, there have been this idea that there are too many people in cities, and so housing policies responded accordingly to many poor people in cities under the planned shrinkage from the 70s, for example. There was concern about declining local tax base. That's where we get, uh, in a lot of ways, that's where we get the expansion of, say, J51 in the, in the 1980s under Koch, which leads actually directly to the loss of uh, some deeply affordable housing in the SRO stop. We lost uh, over 100,000 units of SRO housing, which directly contributed to uh, the 
uh, the development of homelessness. Um, but we're also dealing with responding to the federal withdrawal of funding, um, to the declining pro the profitability of capital. So we we try to make sure that there are places in policy. We've done this. We've tried to make sure there are places in uh, in policy where uh, rich people can profit off the housing uh, for the poor. You know, or are we responding to, say, an un unsustainable homelessness crisis where we're spending now something close to $3 billion a year in, in New York City just paying for the shelter system? Or are we responding to workforce housing needs? And how are we doing it? I mean, so I think that there's there's a way in which we have to be honest about the, the wide variety of things we're responding to with housing policy and to whom we're responding. You know, we respond very much to organized real estate interests. Um, you know, there was real real estate opposition to something like good cause eviction at the state level, and uh, tenants didn't get it. They've been advocating for it for five years. They didn't get it. Um, and, the, you know, there, there's a really good argument to say that that would have uh, been really important in, in stabilizing rents. And it's, um, you know, we respond to organized financial interests. We uh, respond to bureaucratic and expert interests, uh, things like um, agencies that don't really feel like changing. Um, and we respond sometimes for better, as uh, it was pointed out, and sometimes for worse, um, to organized communities. So I think that sort of thinking about evaluating policy responses has to sort of take all of this in. Now, the basic problem is that there's we're dealing with some contradictions, right? Land is scarce, this idea that land is scarce and excludable versus the idea that land is vast and open, right? There's the, you know, the this is a, a, a good, the Henry George School of Social Science uh, is a good place to remind us that this, that uh, the scarcity and excludability of land is not a natural phenomenon. Um, the contradiction between land's value being determined by the market, um, seeing it that way, or seeing that, that land's value is determined by the social processes of its use. Um, you know, housing, uh, you know, landlords get to uh, get a lot of infrastructure, in a sense, for free. Um, housing's value is determined by the market versus by its quality of, as, as shelter and a home. Um, and the problem is, is that in our current system, both are true. This is why they're contradictions. Um, but if the market formulation comes to dominate the home formulation or the domination of exchange value over use value occurs, it results in all kinds of things like speculation, overfinancing and predatory lending, displacement and gentrification, poor conditions, the lack of supply for people unable to pay market prices, and an oversupply of luxury housing. And I think we have to be very clear that supply isn't going to get us here. Supply isn't going to get us where we want to go if there are if it's not price controlled supply. And part of part of the reason is is that land and housing are not like cherries. So when I talk about markets, when I just teach sort of basic things to my students about markets, I say, you know, markets are, I, I use a bowl of cherries as an example. I say, okay, I have a bowl of cherries. You have $5. You want my cherries more than you want your $5. I want, I want your $5 more than I have my cherries. We exchange and everybody's happy. And that's how markets are supposed to work. 
right, increases the general happiness, right? The problem, of course, is that, you know, there are information asymmetries. I'm, the cherries on top may be beautiful and the cherries on the bottom might be rotten. I know that you don't. And once we make that market exchange, the aggregate happiness no longer goes up because I've screwed you over. Now, there's basic market failures in so much of the housing market. So there's very difficult to talk about housing markets working as they should if we, if the idea of a housing market working as it should is like cherries, right? There's built-in information asymmetries. It's very difficult to calculate future costs. Who lives in the housing that matters to its value, right? The history of, uh, uh, the, the racial history of housing in this country attests to that. Decreases or in, uh, in, in the value of housing increases the cost for those living in it. It's vulnerable to all kinds of externalities in terms of other policies that impinge on housing. Um, there's extreme inequality in the market, uh, usually not extreme inequality in the market for cherries. And there's a lack of geographic boundaries in the market. So we could increase a ton of supply and a lot of that supply could be snapped up by people who aren't even ever planning on living in it as investment properties. Right, so we have to have built-in real uh, uh, regulation of supply and not just hope that supply gets us where we want to go. Now, we've talked a lot about New York's housing emergency. Um, I, I had a different slide about this. I just think that we just need to make sure that when we're talking about affordability, we're talking sensibly about it. Even in New York, and I, I appreciate you know, Brendan's idea of looking at different community districts, um, but community districts themselves are also geographically distinct, right? It, it, under Bloomberg, I, I once did a calculation, it was a little back of the envelope, but I, I stand by it, that 93% of the units on, developed under Bloomberg that were affordable housing in East Harlem, which was a big, if, if you remember Brendan's map, it was a big uh, gain, it was a big gainer in um, affordable housing supply. 93% of the units were not affordable to the median renter in East Harlem because incomes were low in East Harlem. And we to, to determine what is affordable housing, we use the benchmark of 80% of area median income, which doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of communities around the city. So that even in probably in Salamanca's district, some of that 2,000 units uh, gain in affordable housing wasn't even affordable to the people in Salamanca's district. And in a funny sense, almost, you know, we, we're now at the point where a lot of people, when they hear affordable housing, don't trust that it's going to be affordable. And they think that affordable housing is going to gentrify their neighborhoods, and they're not crazy. Right? And this is reproduced throughout the city. Now to get into a little bit of what uh, some of the policy response that, that we're trying to sort of work up is, uh, I wanna start 20 years ago. Picture the Homeless, which is a grassroots uh, homeless act activist group, uh, started to survey land and housing around the city. Uh, they had a lot of members who did a lot of walking around the city. They started to realize that there were a lot of, there, there seemed to be a lot of empty buildings, a bunch of empty land. And so there was, uh, land and housing without people and people without land and housing. And they started to advocate for counting vacant property. And they, they came up with um, a couple of different reports, one in 2007 in Manhattan, one in 2011 citywide. 
And they found that both with vacant buildings and with vacant lots, if they were built up to the then current zoning, they, they surveyed a third of the, of the community districts in New York. They found that there would be room for almost 200,000 more people. All right, now, of course, dynamics have changed. That was, after, that was still in the sort of post financial crisis 2008 slump so that there was a lot of unbuilt or half built housing around. Nevertheless, part of what they were pointing to is the, that the market is not allocating housing in any, uh, and land in any sensible way. Um, and they were also interested in uh, something that happened 10 years before that or 30 years ago, the Cooper Square Committee, which had first organized in 1959 against Robert Moses's uh, plan to drive highway through Cooper Square area of the Lower East Side, and also to knock down a bunch of housing and build less affordable uh, housing there. They fought for many years, and 30 years ago, they closed a deal on a deal with the city to preserve more than 300 units of affordable housing. And they formed what's called a mutual housing association, which is like a, a rental co-op. Now it's an actual co-op with shares, but it sits on a community land trust. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about community land trust since that's really the, the group that I'm, I'm working most with. And so 12 years ago, some of these ideas began to converge, picture the homeless, and I were working on a class on land housing and community control, and trying to think about ways to deal with the crisis in neighborhoods that were producing a lot of homelessness, but were also getting gentrified, and also had a lot of vacant land and property. So, the, and then the New Economy Project was working in a studio at Columbia University, where they were trying to figure out how to plan for community land trusts to preserve affordable housing in housing that was being foreclosed in Brooklyn and Queens. Community Board 11 in East Harlem was working with the Regional Plan Association to think about how to deal with threats to rental housing, including expiring uh, low-income housing tax credit properties and uh, expiring Mitchell Lamas. And they, came, they said, well, you know, maybe a community land trust would help. So a bunch of us uh, got together. We just thought, you know, what if? What if we could develop housing for people who really cannot pay for it? What if we could keep people housed by stabilizing land and housing values so they weren't displaced by gentrification, speculation, or abandonment? How could we do these in a way so as to restore displaced people to their neighborhoods? And how could we do this in a way to put people who are not now in control of land and housing in control of it collectively. So um, we hit on this idea of community land trusts with the inspiration of Cooper Square before us. Um, so a community land trust is a nonprofit that owns land for the community. Uh, the model actually has roots in the civil rights movement um, and it also, uh, in the work of Henry George and followers of Henry George uh, with the idea that land value, which is created by the community should be captured by the community. And so a community land trust works where um, community members who are struggling with things like rising costs and uh, in housing and commercial rents, overcrowding and displacement, vacant buildings, they get together, they have residents, 
uh, they have members of the surrounding community and public officials, housing experts, and others. They get together to form an organization and which facilitates community-driven planning that addresses the community's immediate and long-term needs. Um, and it works with a variety of different kinds of, uh, of groups and housing tenure models as well. Um, and what we were trying to do is to figure out how to use community land trusts to pre preferentially house those with the greatest housing needs. Um, and so we ended up forming something called the Community Land Initiative, which is uh, improbably called nicely the New York City Community Land Initiative. The C shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, double C should never be pronounced that way, but, but there you go. Um, and we formalized and named ourselves actually 10 years ago this week. Uh, we've grown to 36 organizational members, including 15 community land trusts or community land trusts in formation and 14 non-member endorsers. So there's 50 altogether. Um, and we've had already, I think, an, an impact on broader housing policy discussions, especially in the housing movement, where there's been a greater uh, interest in a wide variety of housing models that collectively are often called social housing, or decommodified housing. Uh, we founded a community land trust in East Harlem, which has uh, closed on its first 36 units. We've supported the formation of community land trusts in five boroughs, um, and we've gotten city council funds for organizing to, to help support the organizing. And we expanded community land trusts. Um, we expanded two uh, helping community land trusts that also meet other neighborhood needs, uh, such as economic uh, and job development, such as health, education, uh, arts. Um, and so, you know, one of the questions we are always faced with is where's the land going to come from? Uh, we'd supported uh, an earlier uh, Picture the Homeless Initiated Act uh, that's based on their uh, vacancy work called the Housing Not Warehousing Act, which is uh, passed but incomplete. Uh, we are still, we still would love to um, have a real uh, registry of vacant uh, land and housing as well as uh, penalties for not uh, for non-compliance. Um, we're supporting now in city council, a, a group of bills that has uh, very wide support uh, called the uh, Community Land Act, which combines a Community Opportunity to Purchase Act or COPA, which would um, basically give tenants uh, or and community organizations rather the right of uh, first refusal when um, Housing goes up for sale. The Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, which uh, which is state legislation, uh, which and there's a resolution in City Council to support that. The Public Land for Public Good Act, which would prioritize community land trusts and nonprofits in the disposition of city-owned land, as well as permanently abolishing uh, the tax lien sale, the sale of tax liens, which came under Giuliani. Um, it was there for 25 years and um, basically privatizes tax collect, uh, property tax collection um, uh, or uh, collection of delinquent property taxes in a way that actually um, uh, ha has a bunch of different harms uh, for uh, the affordable housing stock and actually would direct these into programs that uh, would create long-term and deep affordability. Um, 
There are other specific campaigns around church property, around landlords who actually want out of the business because they have pesky tenants who want them to maintain their buildings. Um, around HPD owned lots, which are currently used as uh, police department parking instead of for housing. And then there are specific properties such as the former Lincoln Detox Center in the Bronx or an underused DOE building in Queens, as well as sites in, East, in the East New York Industrial Development Zone. So there's basically now a, a great deal of interest in organizing around community control of, of land and housing. Now, where's the money going to come from, right? And, and some of the things that uh, Brendan talked about are right on our, you know, on the radar screen. We need more capital grants, right? The more you have in capital grants, the less debt you have and the greater the affordability can be. We see this in our project in East Harlem, which is carrying more debt than we wanted it to carry, precisely because it interferes with our ability to get deeper affordability. And, you know, one of the things that, that we've also noted is that needs and neglectful policy go hand in hand. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we've also seen is the city would be perfectly happy to get rid of a bunch of it's the housing that it still owns from tax foreclosure in the pre-Giuliani years, and that includes some of the buildings in East Harlem. The thing is, is that the city owned it for 25 years and neglected it. And the city doesn't enforce its housing standards. It doesn't have a, you know, it, it has, a, has a poor record in enforcing uh, housing, uh, good housing conditions. And the longer that goes on, the greater the rehab needs are, the, are, are for buildings if our communities actually do gain control of it. And the problem with that, of course, is that it, it, it just means that we we're, we pay for our neglect. And what ends up happening is, is that if we don't actually decide to pay for our neglect, then our neglectful policies create situations where we can't even create the deep affordable housing that we need. Uh, direct grants are better than tax credits, uh, partially because even though tax credits put, put capital money in, the problem is, is that unless you figure it out well in advance, you could lose control of that housing in the long run. Um, and the other thing is capital subsidies actually are preserved in the housing over time. And that's true for nonprofit rental housing. It's also true for a limited or no equity co-ops uh, that can operate on community land trust land. Um, for operating subsidies, there's a need for ongoing operating subsidies and project-based subsidies are better than tenant-based subsidies. Um, the, uh, there's necessary uh, money needed for uh, ongoing uh, organizing. Um, these models don't work without a constant ability to organize residents, to, to both to take control and to take responsibility for their housing, but also to expand uh, through neighborhoods. Because the idea is that we want to bring as much housing and land out of the speculative market. And then uh, we have a commitment to uh, housing those most in need. So those operating subsidies are still going to also be need, need to uh, target this deep affordability. Now, what's the difference community land trusts um, 
uh, lend to the equation over just regular nonprofit housing. Uh, sometimes it's duplicative, right? I mean that, and and but in a good way, I think. Um, nonprofit uh, community development corporations and limited equity co-ops very often also um, limit the cost of housing well into the future. These are deep, these are permanent affordability models, and yet a community land trust by means of a ground lease. Um, can enforce that in ways that um, sometimes uh, more resident controlled uh, organizations uh, can't or, or don't want to. Um, there are uh, direct accountability structures in uh, community land trusts, uh, which is not necessarily true for nonprofits. Um, there's a broader group of stakeholders. I mentioned that there's both neighborhood residents and uh, residents and users uh, and, and leaseholders of um, uh, property on the CLTs. And it's compatible with multiple forms of housing and land use. In other words, you could have community land trust that has an art center, a, uh, a, uh, a, a, a garage and uh, you know, cooking facilities for street vendors, but also have affordable housing. Um, and, uh, and, and that would mean that there's even, even broader group of stakeholders. So part of this, the part of what's also the, the sort of difference in the mix, which is I think important is that it treats land and housing as something specifically that has to be, that, that gains its, its value in its use. Um, and it doesn't think about housing as simply a unit that you put a family into or, or individuals into, but rather some part of a community. Um, and I think that that's, that's ex an extremely important element here. Um, some of the obstacles are uh, an ongoing policy preference for and deference to for-profit developers, plain and simple. Uh, there's an insufficient commitment to subsidies on all three levels of government. We've, we've heard this. Uh, some of the layered financing, uh, again, that Brendan sort of uh, pointed to, can be very difficult to use. This mix of uh, various different financing tools, uh, uh, some of which uh, sort of default to saddling uh, projects with too much debt. Um, there's a resistance to innovation at the local level and not enough staff. Um, plain and simple, HPD has not been really up to the task. Uh, and that's not necessarily, you know, it's partially because different parts of the agency want different things. Uh, there's a, a risk that uh, community land trusts could be sort of co-opted, the form of it could be co-opted so that you now have, say, the preservation trust, not really exactly a co-optation of it, but preservation trust, which is supposed to give residents more say um, in public housing as it's sort of being moved from section uh, nine to section eight with private investors and, uh, and private managers. And the, the question is really what say do they actually have and, and do they um, do tenants actually preserve the rights that they had under public housing? Um, and then that confuses some of the conversation about community land trusts as well. Um, there's also some policy confusion generally and that sort of refers back to my, my first slide. Um, which is uh, sometimes a confusion of opportunity and displacement uh, with fair housing, for example. Um, sometimes the fair housing discussion is all about opportunity to move rather than opportunity to stay in a neighborhood where you've put down roots. 
Um, and that also sometimes comes along with assumptions about poor people and people of color uh, wanting to get out um, rather than wanting to improve uh, their, their neighborhoods. Uh, there's some confusion about affordability versus supply because supply does not necessarily equal greater affordability, especially for people at very low incomes um, because housing and land are not cherries. Um, and then I wanted to just uh, close very quickly with some of the opportunities. Uh, we have built a lot of local and state support around these. I think we've changed the conversation. Uh, there are a lot of uh, politicians are giving lip service, at least, to community land trusts, uh, even if they don't completely understand them, but that's okay for now. Um, there are links uh, with the housing justice, environmental uh, justice, and just transition movements uh, that I think are, are really important and they're developing. Um, and then there's a sort of opportunity in the unsustainability of the shelter system, right? We're, at a, we're almost at a breaking point here. Um, and uh, there's the unsustainability of current spending priorities. I mean, we if we um, if we keep dumping billions and billions of dollars into the NYPD and uh, sort of giving them a blank check for overtime and for uh, and for settlements with uh, brutalized New Yorkers, we have a problem, right? And and I think that loads of people are beginning to, and they began certainly in, in 2020, to start to see that there's still something unsustainable about that, even if they are worried about uh, crime in their communities. So we are in this sort of situation where the future of our neighborhood is, uh, our neighborhoods are up for grabs, where we really have a choice between keeping on seeing land as something that's for profit or land that's something for people. And I, I think that the quote of the week from the Henry George School is really opposite, uh, is, an, is, is appropriate uh, to recall at this time. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave this up for 10 seconds and then thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.